Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Quack Quack Knockreiner. <laughs> As Corey's hinting at, our first topic today is a botnet that I thought was named QuackBot, but may not be. Uh, after that, we dive into an update from the SEC on mandatory disclosure timelines for publicly traded organizations, and then end with a review of fiscal year 2022 risk and vulnerability assessment analysis. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and what do ducks do? Swim their way in? Fly their way in? Paddle Everything in. Everything their way in? Paddle I in. I need to come up with some weird witty statement and throw off my shades like that CSI guy. Let's paddle on in. Please don't. And then who music? Who? <laughs> pops up and blasts all our ears. Not that we could get that past our royalties with our huge 443 security budget. I think that would be like a decade of our budget right there. Most likely, yes. So let's start this week. And actually, before we jump into the first story, uh, you know how when you... Every once in a while, you like see a word over and over and over again, and you always like insert letters or pronounce it wrong, like rare archives for 30 years of my life. Are you uh, going to say this thing? is Quake? Is Quake what you were thinking, Mark? So I've ever since I first started reading about this particular botnet we're about to talk about, I've always called it Quackbot. And I'm realizing it's probably more accurately Cackbot. Q with the spelling, but I'm with you. I'm like, quack, 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 bon. yeah. it, it definitely, I, maybe it was a misspelling one time, but I kind of call it quackbot too. But I think you're right. The way it is literally spelled is probably cackbot. How do you even pronounce Q without a U? Cack. Does it turn I, into a C and that's why we do cackbot? I don't know. English but is anyways. a screwed up language, especially American English. Yes, it is. Very much so. Um, so continuing on that trend of screwed up language, uh, as we just hinted at, we're going to be discussing a report on CACBOT or QBOT, or I'm going to call it QuackBot because it's more fun. Uh, so Zscaler's research team just put out a report last week highlighting some of the latest evolutions of this botnet. Uh, it's been around since 2007. Uh, and it focuses primarily on credential theft from web browsers. Think of it as like a typical banking Trojan style botnet. Uh, but it also includes mechanisms for de delivering additional payloads, sometimes cobalt strike beacons, and sometimes ransomware. Uh, so in Zscaler's blog post, they first pointed to a post they made back in March uh, where they highlighted, and I think we actually talked about this one, where they yeah. highlighted its evolution uh, from using Microsoft Office files for its primary uh, delivery mechanism uh, to using Microsoft OneDrive or OneNote files instead. Uh, so from January, Microsoft started blocking Office macros by default for anything downloaded from unsafe locations like the internet or email attachments. Uh, and CACBOT, QuackBot, whatever, and the others had to transition to other delivery vehicles and OneNote files were one of them. Uh, they also note that they saw a significant activity decline from CACBOT, QUACKBOT, QBOT 
in the month of June. And they think there might have been a pause in the threat actor's operations. But up until and including June, there's actually been almost monthly iterations and changes to how this botnet is delivered. And they're pretty interesting. Uh, so back in uh, January or so, they started move- using uh, OneNote files. But pretty soon after that, they started right. shifting to PDF and HTML files as that initial vector. All of these are attached to an email that comes through some form of uh, mouse spam, as they call it. So just a fish, typically like carpet bomb to a whole bunch of individuals, rarely attached to a spearfish. Um, but so if we look at the PDF one first, so it starts by downloading a obfuscated JavaScript file that's typically named after something like an invoice or attachment or something generic like that creates a registry key and adds a base 64 encoded PowerShell command that then goes and downloads the actual Quackbot DLL and executes it. So at the end of the day, Qbot, Quackbot, Cacbot, it's a library, a DLL that it uses other mechanisms into and executing. Uh, the malicious, malicious HTML file that they saw around the same time is pretty similar. It's designed to look like a uh, just innocuous website, uh, but it ultimately downloads a password-protected zip archive, which it then unpacks, pulls out obfuscated JavaScript, which then executes PowerShell, which then grabs Quackbot. So you can see a trend here in the early months of this year uh, where most of its activity involves some sort of loader running PowerShell ultimately to then go get this DLL file. Um, some other analyzed samples they had though actually starts with um, other malicious files that then download a, uh, so as an example, a, a OneDrive file or OneNote file, sorry, that they goes and downloads a zip archive that contains an HTA file. I think we've talked about those before. HTML HTA. application. Yep. Yeah. So a way to kind of before, you know, the Electron and other um, JavaScript-powered local web apps, this is a way to basically run an application with HTML files. Uh, they showed one example of a PDF that it looks like an Office 365 page. It says, this document contains files from the cloud. To view them, click the open button. And if you click that open button, it then downloads that zip archive, extracts the HTA file, which then... Uh, executes using mshta.exe, so the local runtime for running those files, runs PowerShell, gets Quackbot. Uh, They had other vectors, though. There's one that uh, I admittedly was not familiar with until about two hours ago. Uh, So one of the other vectors involves Microsoft Excel add-ins, which are XLL files. Corey, have you ever ever used an Excel add-in file? I have not. So, Are they formatted like DLLs? <laughs> I mean, no. Or am I just reading too much into the extension? Similarly, <laughs> think of it like a macro pack, I guess, where it's a office-based language where it can it's got like export functions and things you can call in it, but it's not a traditional DLL. But it is still kind of a library of functions in the same way a exactly. dynamic link library is just a library of code functions. But in this case, it's Excel macro language. And every Microsoft Office application has its own type of these add-on packs. So Windows, it's .wll files. Excel, it's .xll files. Uh, funny enough, the window or the Word versions of this 
Uh, you can only run them if they're saved in a pretty specific and secure directory. Whereas the Excel version of this, you can literally download it from an email attachment, open it, and it will uh, open it within Excel without any issue. Now, it does give a pretty prominent pop-up saying there's a potential security concern, and it asks the user if they want to enable that add-in. But you can still social engineer a way around that. It's not a hard block like the macro blocking that Microsoft does on files that you cannot get around without going extremely out of your way. Um, in April, they analyzed attacks that were using Windows script files, so WSF files, to go grab CACBOT using a XML HTTP request, which actually completely replaced PowerShell at this point. Wonder, so PowerShell seems like the easy tool to use, but maybe they're realizing EDR tools are really catching on to obfuscated PowerShell commands, and they had to pivot to something else like a Windows script file. I don't know. Uh, in May, it added even more sophistication. So now it includes uh, indirect command execution, DLL side loading for the actual library itself. Still involves phishing messages, delivering that WSF file. Uh, but now it also uses conhost.exe as a kind of interme intermediary to carry out the commands. Uh, so they had an example where it was a zip archive that contained a executable file that loads a hidden DLL and uses curl to go grab the CACBOT payload. All of this executed through conhost.exe. So basically, long story short, welcome to all active. the lolbass binaries you need for living off the land. We got MSHTA, conhost, and more. <laughs> exactly. It very much seems like they're using these living off the land techniques to ultimately go grab their malware library and then execute yeah. it on the system. By the way, I just threw out the word lolboss, and probably no one knows what, well, some people know, but if you don't, no there's one knows. A, 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 a GitHub. Yeah, yeah. Only we are elite enough to know about this totally public GitHub, but it's the living off the land binaries and scripts uh, GitHub where you can see very common Windows you know, scripts and executables that are used for exactly what CACBOT is using them for. Yep. And I mean, the good news is from a defender standpoint, like just because it's living off the land doesn't mean you can't catch this activity. Yeah. Like ultimately that malicious DLL, you can still catch that even potentially with basic endpoint protection. But the rest of this, like the living off the land techniques of, you know, obfuscated PowerShell commands or executing commands through conhost.exe or executing a script that was unpacked from a zip archive. These are all IOAs that most... EDR tools can and likely do detect. Whoop, whoop, watch guard EPDR. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> exactly. had to do it, Mark. <laughs> there you go. Product placement. Got to keep our paychecks rolling. Yeah, we need our lights on so we can keep doing the podcast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. This is how why I live my life, to do this podcast. Um, the one <laughs> last thing my wife. Report, <laughs> one last thing from the report I wanted to highlight before we move on is they actually, uh, they tracked the command and control server locations for QuackBot. And the overwhelming majority of them were in the United States with a distant following from Great Britain, India, Canada, and France. And I don't know about you, but I've had a few interactions with just end user sysadmins recently where they asked the question of, you know, should I be blocking Russia and China's address space? 
Uh, what level of protection will that give me for my organization? And I think this is a great example of our proof that just blocking based off geographic location isn't some grand firewall that's going to keep you safe from these styles of attacks. Like when they can just spin up a virtual private server in any country they want and use that as the command and control infrastructure or the delivery mechanism, it, it doesn't matter if you're blocking Russia, if the delivery server is based out of the United States. Agree, Corey? Yes. I think so. <laughs> Anyways, uh, moving on, this is an update from a couple months ago uh, where we discussed the Security and Exchange Commission and their proposed rules around mandatory disclosure of security wow. incidents. And if you remember, so this was actually probably, what, five months ago now, six months ago, when they put out their proposed rule set. Uh, well, at this point, like today, as of this week, they have officially enacted their new rule changes, and which will go in effect in about 30 days, uh, probably 25 days as of when you listen to this podcast. Uh, the rules are mostly similar to what we had previously discussed and what they originally proposed, but there are actually a couple of changes that I think are worth highlighting. Uh, so at a high level, the rules say that any publicly traded company must disclose material cybersecurity incidents within four days of them determining that the incident is material. Uh, and then they also, and that disclosure must include facts about the incident's nature, scope, timing, and the impact. Now, so right off the bat, the four days is different. When we were first talking about this, I, if I remember correctly, it was like 36 hours or something like that. Uh, maybe potentially just two days. Um, but either way, four days feels a little more manageable. And they added the caveat in there of it has to be a, you have to know it's a material incident, which leaves a little bit of wiggle room, I feel like, for organizations. Uh, the second major change they had, uh, which was different from the uh, original proposal, is now that disclosure can be delayed if the United States Attorney General determines that the immediate disclosure would pose a substantial risk to national security or public safety and notifies the commission of that determination in writing. So this is one of the things you and I hit it on, Corey, when we yes. were chatting about this earlier, yeah. was that there wasn't this wiggle room for like law enforcement blocking the disclosure if they're actively working on something that might affect national security. And, that and we like happen to have experience now of knowing that type of thing exists and... Uh, even companies that do eventually want to fully publicly disclose things for, you know, everyone, their customers themselves, there are definitely times when, when you're going against certain threat actors or adversaries where law enforcement doesn't want you to. So, yeah, we, we maybe four years ago, we may not have been as pushy for that one, but I'm glad that they did this change. Now that said, this bar is about as high as it gets. Like you have to get the attorney general of the United States of America to send over this, which is the head of the DOJ. Like it's not, you know, some court having a court order. It's not even some like FISA court, one of the secret courts. It's literally you have to have the top of the DOJ sign off on it, which is pretty intense. Yeah. On the flip side, <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> 
humble brag, but you and I have uh, neat little certificates that are signed by the head of the FBI. And uh, even that wouldn't lots be enough. Of big Christopher Ray signing yeah, off on. I get it. The DOJ to... is different, but guess who sent uh, subpoenas for various things to us? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, anyways, that's one major change. Um, additionally, with these new rules, any organization that's publicly traded will also need to, as part of their annual filings, uh, describe their process, if any. This is my That's my favorite part of the quote, your process, if any, recognizing <laughs> some organizations may not have this process, uh, for assessing, identifying, and managing material risk from we cybersecurity We laugh threats. at that like, that, like that if any shouldn't be there, but sometimes in my more cynical days, Mark, I feel like the if any is the majority. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. A lot of companies spend, like us, so much time making sure that that process is good and updated but i feel like as much as we joke about that if any could that be the default <laughs> so the what's that i hope the, not i hope not for publicly traded companies at least the surbane oxley act Starbox, one of the yeah. main rules around uh, publicly traded organizations it has rules in there relating to cybersecurity. so my hope would be if you are a publicly traded company you at least have something <laughs> yeah so the if any does feel a little like one. Yeah. Um, they had also, so the final bit of this, this is all mostly geared towards publicly traded companies in the US, but they also said or enacted similar rules for foreign private issuers as well, too. Um, so other organizations overseas that potentially issue certificates to individuals in the United States will be under not identical, but very similar disclosure rules, too. So I think. Like, I mean, you and I are both very much for disclosure. Uh, in fact, sometimes mandatory disclosure feels like, like regulated mandatory disclosure feels like the only way we get that. But I don't know, four days feels more manageable. It's less than CISA's 24 hours or 72 hours for major incidents and critical infrastructure. And at least there is that avenue out that can help protect a uh, ongoing operation against the Russian GRU from being foiled by the SEC. So I don't know, whatever. Overall, good. I, I From my perspective, I think it's good. Yeah. I'm glad they had, like, I, we, we both want mandatory disclosure. I was worried about them being too aggressive for a time, but I feel like they found a, a medium that should work. So moving on to the last story today, uh, speaking of CISA, uh, and speaking of CISA on almost every single episode that we put out of this podcast lately, uh, one of the many benefits that CISA provides to its constituents is that it offers what's called a risk and vulnerability assessment for free. Uh, it's basically a one-time engagement with the organization that results in a actionable risk analysis report containing prioritized remediation recommendations it also includes penetration testing and configuration review for that report. Again, all free. If you are a critical infrastructure organization, which that encompasses a lot of different verticals, uh, you can actually shoot an email to your local CISA office to request being added to the, uh, the list to get one of these done. Uh, so once a year, CISA tabulates the results from all of their RVAs, their risk and vulnerability assessments, and then puts out a report kind of highlighting what the threat landscape is from a risk perspective for critical infrastructure and federal and civilian brand 
So they just released their fiscal year 2022 report, which contains an analysis from 121 RVAs across a bunch of different critical infrastructure sectors. And in the report, they map it all to the MITRE ATT&CK framework. So it's really easy to parse from even executives like Corey that don't do anything hands-on anymore and probably don't understand anything in security. Um, and NMUP? What's NMUP? I play NMUP. with Metis oh, Bleed. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And you even pulled me on that one. Um, so in the report, they focused on one sample attack path that CISA developed in partnership with the U.S. Coast Guard, which I thought was kind of funny. Like I always picture the Air Force is the main like cybersecurity branch of the military. I get I know every single branch of the military has like some cybersecurity operations, but I don't know. Maybe it's just because I saw so many commercials. It feels like the Air Force is mostly the ones doing everything in cyber. So it's interesting seeing the Coast Guard being the one co-opted on this kind of standard that they followed. Um, maybe they developed it while flying around in the rescue helicopters, saving stricken boat passengers. I thought once Trump made the Space Force, they became the de facto cybersecurity people. No? It's, I guess satellites are in space and they I'm just data. Please no. Let's roll with this. Okay, okay. Space Force, they've got yeah. satellites. That could be an argument for it. Air Force, Technical though. Technical like, IT communications everywhere. Yeah. The bulk of our, or a lot of our communications go over some form of wireless signal in the air, though. So that's yeah. also, I think, why I've got this air. potentially false assumption that it's the Air Force. We do have a lot of undersea cables, so maybe the Navy should be the primary actor in cybersecurity. And I don't know. I the army and my army, army friends have trucks they drive into other people's countries that need their communication systems up and going. So hey, <laughs> we need it everywhere. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Anyways, uh, so this kind of sample attack path they developed it covers eleven of the MITRE attack frameworks ten tactics, along with a swath of techniques for each tactic that they test out. And basically, they go through this sample attack. And they try and see what worked to get into the organization to achieve their actions on the objective. Uh, so as an example, starting with the, uh, the tactic initial access, so TA number one, uh, in the RVA analysis, they revealed that the technique 1078, which is valid accounts, was the most common successful attack technique responsible for 54% of successful attempts. Hmm. This feels Pretty true. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they note that valid accounts, it could be like a former employee account that wasn't removed or a default admin account. Uh, it can be attained through either Intel, so buying access to that credential on the underground, password guessing, phishing, stealing it from the, the, uh, the individual. And of these successful attacks, uh, or at least initial access tactics, 54% of them were from valid accounts specifically. You're going to see a trend here, but before we move into the other tactics, uh, to give you some additional context for initial access, the second most common technique was spear phishing links, which was 33% of successful attempts. Spear phishing attachments was only 3.3%, though. So a order of magnitude fewer for attachments versus links. Uh, external remote services was 2.9%. Drive-by compromise was 1.9%. 
and exploiting publicly facing applications was only 1.4%. Wow. All of that checks out, though. I, I'm actually also not surprised the links are bigger in email now than attachments, even though attachments started the problem years ago. So makes sense. It, also makes it is sense weird to... that links are a bigger problem, but drive-bys are only 1%, but that also suggests that the links are going to phishing, not exploits. Yep. And it also makes sense that attackers getting a credential and just logging in through the front door is a way higher success rate than trying to exploit your public facing yeah, infrastructure. This is the second time I've said it today to probably the same size crowd and you would say it too, but that's uh, the MFA is the biggest return in investment security control right now, in my opinion, because as much as we <laughs> like technically cool attacks, it, you know, credentials, that's how bad guys get in, man. Yep. Uh, so moving on to the, the next tactic they highlighted, the execution phase. They actually found that PowerShell was only involved in 14% of successful attempts. But still number one. You know. Still number one. Uh, beyond that... A little uh, different than our report, which is... We, I, I guess this isn't all attempts, but in our endpoint software, we try to see how the most common attack vector that malware begins with, whether it's a Adobe document, you know, PDF, Office document, a Windows thing... Uh, a crack like a Microsoft crack or power or scripts. And for us, it's more like 90% of the time it's scripts and 95% of the time those scripts are PowerShell. So the we see PowerShell is pretty high 14, but to be, again, it's still number one, even though it's only 14% in their stats. With our data by nature, it means it was caught or at least audited, uh, and they were notified about it, maybe not necessarily blocked if they had their EDR misconfigured. So it's interesting that when it actually is successful, it's a smaller volume than the global amount of crap that we're seeing showing up on the endpoint. Uh, so just basic command line access, CLI as a technique, was 12%, and then MSHTA was 8.5%. Uh, there were a few others at smaller ones as well, too. But it does seem like lolbass are being exploited and successfully as proven in these engagements. Which uh, makes sense. I mean, if you're still using older security, the reason people use living off the land aren't because they're the most convenient for persistence. Bad guys want persistence too, but they'd rather not get caught. And apparently not everyone is looking for living off the land techniques. So yep. if bad guys are doing it because security controls are bad at it, you should consider getting security controls that are good at it. So speaking of persistence, valid accounts were involved in 56% of successful persistence techniques. Yeah, just add a user once you get in. Bam, done. Yep. VPN enabled. Uh, and then account manipulation, so abusing an account to really do some other action was 8.7% as number two. Uh, for privilege escalation, believe it or not, valid accounts were involved in 42% of successful engagements. Uh, and process injection was another 19.3% on top of that. Which Both makes sense. Yep. You know, for valid accounts, you get in, you use Mimikatz to capture additional credentials, hopefully a privileged one to get you further, or you find an unpatched Windows machine or something else that you can get uh, higher privileges to maybe grab the, the local accounts on the machine or, you know, 
find uh, ways to get access to something that has a domain admin login. Uh, or if you're just directly on a domain controller process injection just to get system on it or whatever. Yep. Um, when it comes to lateral movement, uh, past the hash attacks, like you were just mentioning with Mimikatz as a potential avenue for that, 27 I'm surprised they didn't mention the Kerberos ticket passing too, because I would suspect by, like, unfortunately, I bet you there's a lot of people that have legacy authentication enabled in Microsoft Windows, so they can still technically be vulnerable to pass the hash. But I had hoped that most people have the settings in their AD to no longer just use normal hashing and instead use Kerberos ticketing. So pass so the I'm, ticket was 9.8%. Okay, so much so not there. in the top three at least, but still yep. there. Yeah, the top three rounded out RDP was at 17% and then Windows admin sense. shares, so SMB was 12.9%. Um, and there's, what was the lowest one here? Windows management instructions, so WMI, WMI was 0.6%. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, for uh, they had some mitigation to the way, and it basically boiled down to monitor your stuff. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> like review logs to access logs to look for abnormal access, compare cyber threat intelligence with your network traffic logs to look for command and control connections, and then just basic security hygiene, like disabling unnecessary accounts to protect against valid account usage with gaining access to an organization. Um, so it feels high level, mostly because we talk about it almost every single week with a lot of these same repeated tips. Um, but the report itself, it's still pretty interesting. It's only 18 pages. You can potentially skim through it during the lunch break. Um, I thought it was cool from this perspective of seeing how they were successfully able to penetration test a government organization or critical infrastructure sector. And the good news is like, this is their report telling us what they found when they do these actual assessments. They literally give a 20-something, 30-something page report back of a prioritized list of, here's what you need to take care of first. This is the exact mitigation instruction we recommend, then this, then this, then this, and this, which can help a lot with critical critical infrastructure organizations that maybe they don't even have a cybersecurity professional that could do that on their own. So I like this as a service that CISA offers. Yeah. I have to say, we've been giving credit where it's due lately. You know, 20 years ago, I made fun of Microsoft. They're getting better. I would say even 10 years ago, I had a pretty low opinion of government, at least United States government cybersecurity. You know, they a lot of their organizations, when they did assessments, got very bad grades. And that's still kind of happening probably now more due to budget. I felt that even though I've always followed US CERT and they were pretty decent at letting folks know they're, you know, before CISA existed and even when CISA started and things like the FBI's InfraGuard, I just, I felt like everything they shared was one way and they were sharing mostly stuff that the industry had talked, private industry had talked about a long time ago. But man, they've upped their game, whether it's the FBI, whether it's CISA, uh, they're, you know, well, yes, sometimes we know of some of the content they, they post when they post it. They're posting it much faster. They're adding really good quantifiable information. They're adding lots of practical tips. So, hey, I, I hope that the small, 
you know, local and state government organizations that are getting CSIS grade get the budget to actually take action. But from a federal, I can't believe I'm saying this with our Congress and our whole political system crapped out, but I feel like CISA and, and even some of our intelligence agencies have been doing good at trying to get better at cybersecurity, not just for the government, but for you know private industry too, knowing that the entire economy and even our infrastructure depends on it. So just good job. Well, let's also put this in perspective too. So you would probably consider Microsoft as a pretty big company, right? Oh, absolutely. They're huge. Microsoft has 221,000 employees. That's a ton of employees. Ignoring all of the critical infrastructure under CISA and just focusing on the federal civilian executive branch uh, organizations, they have 1.87 million employees. <laughs> wow. I did not yeah. realize they were that big. <laughs> Huh. So the attack surface is absolutely massive. And so the fact that they're doing as well as they are from a government perspective, I am absolutely impressed with where we're at right now. It's not easy for a government agency, especially one and like a state agency that has even fewer resources. It's got to be tough. So yeah, 1.87 million employees. That's insane. But anyways, definitely check out the report. Uh, it's what do they call it? The CISA analysis fiscal year 2022 risk and vulnerability assessments uh, published just this last week. You might get some good tidbits out of it on what to look out for. And in my style of offering a fantastic compliment and then a backhanded one, they deemed to do a little work on the titles rolling off the tongue. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the best title for a report to just roll off the tongue. Yeah, I'm I, I whatever. They need more acronyms. That's what they need. What did oh, I yeah, what's that's, saying? Our industry just, uh, that's what we're totally lacking in cybersecurity. We do not have enough short acronyms. It's even worse in the federal government. That's how you get promoted, is coming up with a new acronym. <laughs> Definitely how Gartner people get promoted, making up some new acronym for an industry product that already exists. I thank them for zero trust. I do not appreciate everything else. <laughs> Uh, they're actually good at, at trying to find a common way for the industry to discuss stuff. We love you, Gardner. I'm just throwing shade for shade's sake. Corey, blink twice if you're in danger. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions for today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on X. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the ball nope. are at Twitter. <laughs> I don't care. It's Screw the X. icon. It's Twitter. Dave got half I'm the not names. zeeting. I'm not going to zeet at anybody. <laughs> no. Oh, wait. I, I'm sorry for the list. We, we, we're not going to make fun of Musk anymore. Never mind. Yes, reach out to us on Zeet, Zeet us on X. Do you even pronounce that particular formulaic mathematical symbol as X? It doesn't have a pronunciation. Freaking one percenter bullcrap. Sorry. Yep. I wish Is I had $44 billion to throw away into nothing. <laughs> Anyways, hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening and you'll hear from us next week. Longest intro or outro ever, sorry. <laughs>